Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm uh, Pastor Rob, also known as the youth pastor here at Trail Christian Fellowship. It is my privilege and honor to serve in this capacity. I absolutely love it. We are going to be continuing our series in the, the Servant Songs, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50. So if you got your Bible with you and you want to follow along, open up to Isaiah chapter 50. This is a little bit of a teaser. I don't know if you know this, but we're going to be doing uh, a series through the book of Isaiah uh, starting here in the fall on Wednesday nights. Uh, so if you want to come and join us for that, uh, we encourage you to do so. Yeah, Isaiah is an amazing book. Uh, Rick Boya called it the gospel of the Old Testament, and he's not the only one. There's others as well that hold the same view of the book of Isaiah. And the reason for that is the servant songs, as they point directly to Jesus. These are prophecies of the coming Messiah. Each and every one of these servant songs we've been looking at, they're called songs or oracles of the coming Messiah. And I want to give a little bit of background before we get into the passage, because without the context of everything that this was spoken into, uh, you can get a little lost. And so there's a, a basic prophetic message that you see in all of the prophets uh, in the Old Testament and has three basic components, the message of the prophets. The first is, is that you have broken God's law and you better repent. Okay, That is the first thing that they're telling uh, the nation of Israel, God's people, is that they've broken God's law and they better repent. And they broke it in three main ways. There are three primary sins in which the nation of Israel had committed uh, that had broken their covenant with God. The first is idolatry, that they were worshiping other gods. And so that was the first and primary offense. Uh, the second one was uh, ceremonial superstition or ritualism in which they felt that as long as they went to the temple and and did their, their sacrifice, then everything was good. Didn't matter how they lived their life the rest of the time, right? And the prophets are like, no, that doesn't work. Uh, you can't just uh, go through the motions and think that everything's okay. It's an issue of the heart. It doesn't matter if you're doing all the right things on the outside. And then the third element uh, of their indictment is social injustice. They treated the poor and the mar marginalized very badly, just like the nations around them. And uh, and they were called to act very differently. They were called to, to welcome in uh, the sojourner and the foreigner and to care for those who could not care for themselves. And they were not doing this. And so these are the three main indictments by the prophets that we see in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is no different. He, uh, he spends the first half of the book of Isaiah is him charging Israel with these crimes and saying, you have done these things and you better repent. And so the first half of the book is written during the Assyrian crisis in which Assyria was looming there and uh, they were like, oh, what's going to happen? And sure enough, Assyria comes and he, uh, they take out the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. 
And so the first half of the book is written in that context. The second half of the book, in which we find the servant songs, was written after the captivity. And so they're in bondage right now. He's writing to the northern kingdom, and also there's the southern kingdom, Judah, as well, which soon will be uh, taken out by Babylon. And so he's writing to the nation of Israel as they are experiencing difficulty because of their sin, okay? So they are suffering because of their sin, and that is the context of the servant songs. And I think that's very important to understand because sometimes we will find ourselves in a situation where we are suffering because of our sin, and there is a message of hope. And so this is the um, the second part of the the prophetic message is that if you don't repent, there's going to be judgment, Okay, all of the prophets said this. If you don't repent, there's going to be judgment. And the third aspect, and this is what we see in the servant songs, is that if, however, there is hope beyond the judgment for both Israel and the nations. There's hope beyond the judgment for both Israel and the nations. And Jesus is that hope. <laughs> okay, And so the, the servant songs are pointing directly to that hope. And that is why they're so beautiful and so glorious uh, the purpose of the servant songs, they are doing this. The servant is presented as the one who delivers God's people in a new exodus and mediates a new covenant as well as delivering the nations and opening their eyes to the truth. Okay? So there's three main elements here that we see in the servant songs. We see that they, that the servant is the one who brings about a new exodus and there's something that you see within all the covenants that God deals with his people. There's always an exodus. God is always rescuing his people out of something and then bringing them into relationship with him, right? We call that covenant, when God makes relationship with people, okay? And so that's what we have in the new covenant, right? He rescues us. Now, their backdrop of exodus and their, their minds when when he writes them, we're going to see this in the chapter, okay? Their idea of Exodus was what we know as the Exodus in the Old Testament, right? Where God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he did it in a miraculous and amazing way, okay? Well, for us, and this is good for you to keep in mind, what is the Exodus? It's the cross. That Jesus took sin on himself, died in our place, rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and is alive and well today, reigning and ruling over all creation. And all those who come to him are rescued out of slavery to sin. Okay? So that is our great exodus. And so the what we'll see and what we have been seeing is that the servant brings about this new exodus, a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And it's not just for the nation of Israel. It's for everybody. It is for the nations. And by the way, just a little sidelight. I think it's very cool to know this. But all through all the covenants, there's always a hint that it's for everybody. It's that it's a little thing that's tagged on at the end. Oh, and it's going to be for the nations also. And that's where it all comes together 
in Jesus. There's a couple of major themes that flow through the servant songs, uh, and we're going to see them again today. We've seen them in the, the first two that we've looked at so far, and Pastor Bill is going to be teaching the fourth one next week, the one that everyone's familiar with in Isaiah 53. But the first major theme that we see is light to the nations. We see this in all the servant songs that, that the servant is bringing light to the nations. In the first song we see, it says, And I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. It's in uh, Isaiah 42, verse 6. In the second song we saw last week, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And what we'll see in the one today in Isaiah 50 is that it is the teachings of the servant, the words of the servant that become the light to the nations. Another theme that we see throughout the servant songs is that his suffering, the servant's suffering is the means of fulfilling his divine mission. That his suffering is the means of fulfilling his divine mission. The first one we saw in verse or chapter 42, verse 4, it said, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And in the second one we saw last week, in chapter 49, verse 7, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations. And in the one that we're going to see today, we see it again, a little preview in verse 6 of chapter 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. And Isaiah 53 is titled The Suffering Servant. So it's very plain as day in the fourth servant song. So these are some themes that flow through the servant songs. And the main theme for this one is the sovereign Lord and the faithful servant. And that's what we see is that God is totally in charge. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan and he's working it out. And his servant the obedience of the servant, who we know to be Jesus Christ, is evidence of the fact that he is in charge, that he is sovereign over everything. And we see that the servant, in, in his obedience, that he trusts Yahweh implicitly. And this he's our example. He is the servant, and we are called to be servants of the Lord. And he is our ultimate example of what it should look like in our own life to trust God through real injustice and real hardship in our life. Is that we trust Him every step of the way. We don't question His goodness. We don't question His loyalty to us. We realize He knows what He's doing. And that's exactly what the servant does. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into the passage the, the song itself is verses 4 through 11, uh, but the first three verses are important for context, and so we're going to start in verse 1. In verses 1 through 3, we see uh, the redeeming Lord, that He has the power that He is able to redeem. 
Okay, and remember the context, they are currently suffering for their sin. Okay, so they're in a state of suffering for their sin, and they're thinking, God's abandoned me, right? Isn't that kind of how we feel when we're suffering in our life? We feel like God has abandoned us, and this is where their mindset is. Let's see what it says. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver. Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I want to point out a few things here. In the first part of this opening section in which we see the redeeming power of the Lord, he refers to the unresponsive family of God, that they are not responding to him as they ought to. And he asked them a couple of questions. The first one is this, where is your certificate of divorce? You think I'm done with you? That's what he's saying. You think I've written you a certificate of divorce and now you're not my people? Right? That's the question he's asking. He's all, where is it? Show it to me. Yes, I'm letting things happen. And I've got a plan in the process of it. And I want you to learn some things in it. But I have not turned my back on you. That's what he's saying. You don't have a certificate of divorce. See, they were worried, and kind of rightly so, that their sin had put them in a place in which maybe they couldn't come back from. Because if you received a certificate of divorce, it explains in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that that could initiate a series of events that would make it impossible for future reconciliation. And so they were worried that maybe they had gone down a path where they could not come back from. And the message of the Lord to them is no. I have not divorced you. You are simply being unfaithful. (laughs) Okay? Like, and the implication is, yeah, I could, but I'm not going to. What a beautiful message. He had every right to, and he has every right to with us. And he says, no, I am not turning my back on you. So, he declares that, and then he says, to whom have I sold you? And, and he's, he's like, yeah, you may be in slavery yet again, right? But I haven't sold you. You're not somebody else's now, right? That's the implication here. They are not going to be there permanently. And that's true for us too in the, in the, the struggles that we face in our own life and the bondage that we deal with with sin, it is not a permanent reality for those who belong to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful hope. 
That one day he is going to complete the good work that he began in us. One day you will stand perfect before God, never having to struggle again. (laughs) Amen, right? So that is what he's telling them. He's like, it's not permanent. Rescue will come. And he says, this is all happening because of your sin. It's because of your sin. And that's why all suffering happens, by the way. It's because of sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. And sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin. But suffering always happens because of sin. And he says, behold. And whenever you see the word behold, it means pay attention. Because I'm about to say something that's really important. Okay? Look. Behold. Pay attention. That's what the the word means. Okay? It's similar to Jesus' truly, truly, I say to you. Right? So whenever you read that, you need to pay attention. It's important. And he says there are two things that have caused this. He says your iniquities and your transgressions. And these are two words that uh, we translate, obviously, into these words in English. And they, they refer to two different aspects of sin. First is the really the brokenness of the human heart, right? That we desire that in which we should not desire, and it really speaks to the inner perversion of the human heart, that it's twisted and wrong, and that is the iniquities of man. And everybody has this. Every single human being has this sin because we're all broken and need the Lord's help in that regard. And then the other word, transgression, well, it means to transgress what's which means to knowingly break a law. That's what it means, right? So you know what you're not supposed to do and you do it anyway, (laughs) okay? That's a transgression. Where you're like, well, it says 55. But, you know, they're not gonna give me a ticket if I go a little faster than that, right? You know, and that's a known transgression, okay? Um, And that's what he's saying. So you have done these things, you have this perversion of your heart, you have knowingly broken God's law, and so this suffering is taking place. And sometimes God uses our suffering, um, whether it's from our own sin or other people's sin, but he uses our suffering, not just sometimes, actually all the time. He always uses our suffering for good. It says in uh, uh, Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things for good for those who know and love Christ Jesus. And if you don't want to know what good is, you just look at the next verse, which is to be conformed to the image of his son, right? And so God is using suffering always in his people's lives to conform them to the image of his son. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, end quote. This is what God does. He uses our pain, and sometimes what I refer to as a spiritual two-by-four upside the head, to get our attention and to say, look, behold, you need to change the way you think about some things. You need to learn to live differently and to follow me. And he says, why did you not answer when I called? This is what human beings do when they sin, right? They put their fingers in their ears and they close their eyes and they're like, 
you can't see me, I don't hear you, right? And they pretend like God isn't there, like he doesn't know what's going on. Okay, and this is exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? They sinned and they hid themselves, and God shows up, he's like, hello, where are you, right? And they're like, oh, we were hiding. This is what we do in our foolishness. So he says, why was there no one to answer my call? By the way, the, in a lesser sense, Isaiah is also the servant of God and a great example because when God said, whom do I send? Isaiah said, here I am. Of course, he was the only one there. But he said, here I am. It was the right response. Okay? And then he, he asked another question. Um, do you think that I cannot redeem? Is my arm so short that I can't handle this situation? Who do you think I am, God says. Do you not remember? And what does he do? He reminds them of the Exodus, right? Look at the things that he mentions there. He mentions parting the oceans, parting the waters, right? Did he not do that? He parted the Red Sea so they could cross on dry land. He turned the river into blood and all the Fish died, right? And they had no water. He covered Egypt in, in darkness. He did all these things and he rescued them out of the nation of Egypt. And he's saying, don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember what I can do? And what is our exodus? I already mentioned it, right? The cross. So Christian friend, when you're in a state of despair, in a state of darkness, remember the cross. Is God able to rescue you out of the, the darkness that you find yourself in your life? And the answer is yes. He absolutely can do that. And he will do that. And that's the message that he's giving them. Just because it looks bleak doesn't mean I'm not doing something. And you need to remember who I am and what I'm capable of. And then we transition into the servant song. In verses 4 through 6, we see, in contrast to the unresponsive family of God, we see the responsive servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear. To hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So the, this third servant song just like the second, is written in the first person, which means Jesus is speaking right now. And that's an important thing to note. By the way, the wonderful thing about prophecy is that we get to look back after it's fulfilled and be like, oh, that's what was going on, <laughs> right? And that's the beautiful encouragement of prophecy is that we, after the fact, are able to look back. It's a, an important thing to remember because prophecy is not there for us to argue about, Okay. Prophecy is there for us to be encouraged after it takes place. 
And so we look back and we see, these are the words of Jesus. He's speaking right to us. And so it says that the servant has an instructed tongue. He is the perfect disciple par excellence. He is our example to follow. He has an instructed tongue. Uh, the apostle Paul in uh, chapter five of Romans talks about how Jesus is the second Adam. He's the do-over, right? So Adam and Eve, they did not listen. They did not obey. Um, they ended up turning away and to their own way. But Jesus is the perfect servant. He has an instructed tongue. And that means that he learns. How crazy is that? That God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, learns. This is kind of an interesting thing to think about. That God learns. But he does. He learns what to say. Because in the relationship of the Godhead, the Son does whatever the Father wills. This is how the the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work is that that the Son is submissive to the Father and the Spirit is submissive to both of them and does their bidding. Okay, and this is how the relationship works. God is a relationship. And in that relationship, the Son does what the Father wills. And so he, he learned what to say, what to say in his uh, humanity when Jesus was born, God in the flesh, he actually studied God's word. Did you know that? He didn't just like, oh, you know, he didn't just know everything in the Bible, right? He like, he read it. He studied it. He learned it, okay? As a human being, he learned the word of God. He listened to the spirits leading and obeyed the Father's instruction. The writer of Hebrews talks about how he, he learned obedience. It says, in uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Right? And so the servant is obedient. He learns. He has an instructed tongue. It says um, that he has this instructed tongue that is able to Encourage the weary. To sustain the weary with a word, it says. And to know the word that sustains the weary is to know how to sustain the weary. And when you know the word of God, then you know the word that sustains the weary. And you can sustain the weary with that word. This is an amazing thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are weary. And what is humanity weary of? We are weary of not being good. <laughs> right? We try and we try and we try and we fail and we fail and we fail. And we are so tired. We just can't do it on our own. And we are weary. And Jesus says, come to me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? And that means that he shares the burden with you and he empowers you through his strength, through his life, to be good. 
This is the comfort, the ultimate comfort for the human soul. And this is what the servant comes to do, to share the word that brings hope to the weary, that sustains them. He says that the servant has an open ear, a trained ear. Once again, he's, he's carefully listening. He says that he awakens continually to listen to the word of God, to be instructed by the Father. He's always listening. This is what we're called to do also. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I did nothing on my own authority, but speaking just as the Father taught me. See, Jesus came and he, He only told us what the Father told Him to tell us. And that's who the servant is. The one who comes to tell us exactly what the Father has told him to say. Those who belong to God listen to the word of God. This is a defining attribute of people that belong to God, is that they listen to the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. So if you belong to God, then you you hear the words of God. You resonate with the words of God. Jesus, um, well, sorry, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So the words of Christ, which are the words of the Father that he was given to, to tell you and I, when we listen to those words, it draws us into faith and we cannot come to faith without hearing those words. So there's this amazing aspect to listening to the word of God. Unlike Israel and Judah who rebelled, Jesus did not. He did not rebel. He does the Lord's will. In John chapter 5, verse 30, he said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is what Jesus was always doing. Not seeking his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And this is what we are supposed to do as well, is to seek the Lord's will in our life, not looking to ourselves for guidance, but looking to him. Even when Jesus didn't want to do the Father's will, he submitted to the Father's will. Because before he went to the cross, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that is the heart of the servant. Not my will, but yours be done. I continually listening to the Father's instruction. And what an example for us. We see in verse 6 that the servant is faithful even when his body is afflicted. The servant's righteousness, his obedience, his attentive ear and his willingness to be taught all of this has brought about the suffering. Isn't that nice? No good deed goes unpunished, right? You ever experience that in life? You do exactly what you're supposed to do. You know, you're listening to God and man, everything just happens. You're like, what in the world? Lord, I, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm walking with you. I'm following you. And now look at what's happening, right? Well, 
you're in good company. That's how the Lord Jesus felt. He did exactly what the Father asked, and it ended in real brutality. And so this is happening because of his obedience, because he listens. Henry Bloker says this, More often than not, our willingness to be taught by God means the accept, acceptance of shame and pain, end quote. And this is a reality in the Christian life. As we live in a fallen world and we are going about life and, and navigating it, trusting God every step of the way, we experience a lot of suffering uh, along the way. It says that he gives his body to be mistreated. And the word there that's translated, I gave, where it says, I gave my back, that word is in the perfect tense. Now, you're like, well, what does that mean? Um, so both Hebrew and Greek have something called the perfect tense, and it's really important theologically. Uh, it is literally perfect. It is a past action with current realities and future ramifications. That's the perfect tense. A past action with current realities and future ramifications. And here the servant says, Jesus says, I gave. Past tense. It hasn't happened yet. It won't happen for 700 more years. But he says it in the perfect tense because it's a foregone conclusion. This is how everybody who has ever lived is rescued, delivered from the bondage of sin is by this sacrifice, this obedience. And he declares, I did this. In the perfect tense. Amazing. Just amazing. It gives me goosebumps all the time. Like I, when I read the Bible and I see these things, I'm like, wow, that is so cool. This is why we can trust God. Because he's so big that he can say something as though it's already happened. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in the past tense that we are glorified in Christ. In Romans chapter 8. Past tense. Why? Because it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. He also says in Ephesians that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even though we're not there yet. It's an amazing truth. His suffering has three main characteristics that are described here. First, judicial flogging, right? Good old-fashioned flogging, right? We know that's exactly what happened to Jesus, right? He, he gave his back to those who strike, right? So the, the judicial flogging. Also, gratuitous torture. Pulling out a person's beard is just not nice, right? That, that's a sadistic and mean, right? And that's exactly what happened to Jesus, Right? is that he was treated cruelly, unjustly so. And the third aspect that we see here is public humiliation, and that absolutely happened as well. To those who ridicule and spit, public humiliation. The servant is the supreme example of undeserved suffering. No one else has suffered so unjustly as our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see the competent Lord, that even though all this is happening, God is there. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, 
I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like garments. The moth will eat them up. So let's see what he says here. First, he talks about how the Lord will help him, that the Lord stands with him. He vindicates him because of his faithfulness. And by the way, a little sidebar, that's exactly what Jesus does for you. (laughs) He vindicates you when you trust in him, when you put your full weight down on who he is and what he did. And he stands with you. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. The faithfulness of the servant, he, he sets his face like a flint. Uh, flint is a hard stone, and there was nothing that was going to deter him from his path. Nothing. Even when the well-meaning apostles were like, hey, you shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't talk about dying and leaving and all that stuff. We don't like it. Stop talking that way. And what do you say? He said, get behind me, Satan. Nothing was going to get in his way from doing the Father's will. Nothing was going to keep him from rescuing you and me from death and despair. That's what he came to do. In uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. That's what he did. He came with a mission. He knew exactly what he was here to do. And he was always had that in mind. Everything that he did was pointing him to that moment, the cross. He is not put to shame. Even though everyone treats him shamefully, he is not put to shame. When the Lord is on your side, no one can stand against you. Paul said in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's true for us, Christian friend. When we stand in Christ, when we belong to Him, because He is victorious, so are we. And even though we deal with injustice and, and difficulty in this age, in this life, there is ultimate victory in store for you and me. Jesus said in John chapter 16, He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he is alive and well, reigning and ruling over all creation. And all those who put their trust in him are victorious. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We don't just, it's an amazing reality, but sin, you don't just beat it in Jesus Christ. It is becomes subservient to you. 
And I don't even understand what that means exactly. (laughs) But that's what God tells us. You are more than conquerors. In Christ, not in yourself, but in Christ. And one day, you will have your foot on sin's neck. And that is good news. This is the hope that he brings. Because nothing would deter him. And so no one can declare him guilty, right? That's what he says. Who declares me guilty? And that's exactly what it says of you and I as well. In Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so in Christ, there is no more shame. There is no more guilt. We are not guilty. We stand blameless before God because of Jesus. This is the amazing truth, all because of Jesus. And verses 10 through 11, we see the servant and the remnant. There's always a faithful remnant in Israel. There always has been. There always will be. And so there are some that listen. And so he's going to talk about those who trust in the Lord, those who listen to his word, and then there's those that aren't, that don't trust in the Lord, and they listen to their own word. Here's what he says, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip themselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So look what he says here. First he talks about those who trust in the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, listen to the servant. That's what he said. Those who fear the Lord, listen to the servant. And you have not begun to think until you fear the God for being God. Okay? I remember years ago, and this is one of those things that gets absolutely butchered in secular society, but the concept of fearing God, right? People completely misunderstand that. Um, and arrogantly so, they misunderstand it. If God is God, then you ought to have some reference for that, right? Like that's the fear of the Lord, to be in awe of who God is and to realize I owe you my allegiance. That is the fear of the Lord, okay? That's the fear of the Lord. And to not have it is to be in peril, <laughs> okay? You, it's a real problem if you don't fear God for being God, okay? If you don't think you have to listen to him, that's a problem, okay? So, this is uh, an important aspect, and like I said, you have not even begun to think until you've done this. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you want to know truth, then you have to start with the fact that God is God and you are not, okay? That's the beginning place. And from there, real light can be shown into your mind and into your heart. Real truth can be known. But it has to start there. And so to fear the Lord means to listen to the servant. Uh, catch that that means that listening to the servant is the same as listening to Yahweh. Listening to the servant is the same as listening to Yahweh. 
Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Sheep, fellow sheep, listen to the word of Jesus. Listen to your shepherd. You hear it, right? In your soul, you feel his voice and you're drawn to it. Follow him. Follow him. In order to be united with God, you have to listen to Jesus. You cannot be united to God without listening to Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus talks about this. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Literally, it means it's the same word translated abide in chapter 15. It means to dwell. It's the Greek word meno. It means to reside or to dwell or to abide, to choose to live somewhere. That's what it means. Okay? And so he says, if you love me, if you listen to my words, you're going to keep them. You're going to do what I say. And my Father and I will come and we will dwell with you in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's what he goes on to explain. That God's life, his very essence, will dwell in you if you listen to Jesus. The servant gives light to those who trust him, who trust in his name. That's what it says here. He gives light to those who trust him. He says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So trust in the servant, put your weight down on what he says and rely on God the Father. That's what he's saying. And when you do that, you will have light. Psalms 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But those who trust in themselves, it says, they walk by their own light. He says, who lives by their own truth, their own light. You see that? It says that those who light their own torches and guide themselves with their own truth. What is their end? Torment. That's the warning. You want to you walk by your own light? You want to go ahead and be the authority in your own life? You want to be the one that determines what is right and wrong? He says, go right ahead. But this is your end. The invitation is come. Come to me and you will know real light. I want to close with three ways in which we see the hope of redemption and the promise of real light, real truth in our life. And the first is this. This is really important, Christian friend or non-soon-to-be Christian friend, okay? Those of you that are out there that are like, well, I something's holding you back, and it might be just this thought. This is a lie straight from the pits of hell. And the lie that Satan wants you to believe is that you're too bad to be redeemed. Your sin has not made you unredeemable. That's what you need to know. That's the first thing I want you to know is that your sin has not made you unredeemable. And this is why we call it 
good news, by the way, the gospel, euangelion, good news. It is good news because you have not gone too far. Not because you haven't been that bad. <laughs> okay. I have, you have too, okay? But because God is that faithful. He has not divorced you. He has not turned his back on you. He loves you. And so I want you to know that your sin has not made you unredeemable. And you might be thinking to yourself, you just don't know what I've done, Pastor Rob. I've done some really bad things. You're thinking to yourself. I'm sure you have. I have too. And you know what's amazing? So amazing. Say, God loves you anyway. He does. He loves you more deeply and more profoundly than you can possibly imagine. He loves you. He has not turned his back on you. And he proved it. He proved it on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the truth that God loves you. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for your sin. Sufficient, more sufficient than you could possibly imagine. It was enough. I know your sin is bad, but His grace is greater. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. It literally is this big fancy theological word that means that He soaks up sin like a sponge. Okay, He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. His sacrifice was sufficient for every sin that will ever be committed by every single human being. And so it was sufficient. You need to know that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, that for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what he did. He took your sin on himself and he paid for it once and for all. And when he rose from the dead, he offers freely his righteousness to you through faith. And he gives it to you freely. He takes all of his goodness and he gives it to you and he takes all of your badness and he puts it on himself. And so please know that your sin has not made you unredeemable. Second thing I want you to know is that through his suffering and vindication, we can be saved. Through his suffering, he made atonement for our sins. And we see this so clearly in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews declares this in a way that is so profound. It blows the mind. 
He says in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, here's what he's talking about, okay? Now, in the Old Covenant, you had the temple, right? And people had to come and they had to make sacrifices in the temple. And did you know that that temple was modeled after a temple that's in heaven? (laughs) That's what it's saying here. It was modeled after the temple in heaven, okay? And every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the the room that was in the center of the temple. It's where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. It's where the the glory of God dwelt as well. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go in there once a year and he would pour out a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It's called the Day of Atonement. Jesus did that once and for all. And he did it in the temple in heaven. I have no idea how that works. This amazing metaphysical reality where Jesus, when he died on the cross for our sins, he entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven and he poured out his sacrifice there. And now we stand forgiven before God. This is the amazing truth. What an awesome thing. So his suffering has made atonement for our sins. And through his vindication, he has made us blameless. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you stand forgiven. Because of his vindication, we do not have time. But I want you to look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Beautiful picture of God, Jesus, standing victorious in heaven as the lamb that was slain at the right hand of the Father. And he alone is worthy to open the scroll, which is the answer to all of our problems. (laughs) This is the truth. All we have to do is confess our sins. That's it. You want to stand blameless before God? That's where it starts. You just have to confess your sins and put your trust in Him. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all you have to do. It's free. All you have to do is say, I know I've done bad things. Please forgive me. I want your salvation. That's all you have to do. Put your trust in him. And that means that we will not be put to shame because we stand forgiven. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You're not going to look like a fool for doing it. You're a fool for not, quite frankly. Put your trust in Jesus. Because He is constantly there in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. This is part of the work of Jesus right now. Is that He stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. And every time you screw up, He says, that one belongs to me. It's okay. I paid for that. Every time. That is awesome. He stands there defending you in the courtroom of heaven. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. His blood has covered you. He stands forever defending you. And last thing that I want to point out is that in light of all of this, we should walk by the light of Jesus and not our own light. We should walk by the light of Jesus and not our own light. Look to Jesus for how to think and how to live and how to be. We live in a world that is telling us all the time that we should be the author of our own right and wrong, that we should be the ones that define who we are and how we should live and how we should be. And that is a lie straight from hell. That is not true. The great lie of our culture is that truth is found within. And it's not. You can look within all you want and you're going to find nothing but hopelessness and despair. And that's what you see in the world. You see all these people walking in darkness who are desperately trying to find truth within themselves and it's nowhere to be found. Because truth is a person and His name is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so please, don't walk by your own light. Walk by the light of Jesus. Listen to His words and be enlightened. There is real truth in the words of Jesus. Real life in what He has to say. Just like the the beautiful response of Peter and the disciples when everybody walked away from Jesus after he told everybody they needed to drink his blood and eat his body and they were all freaked out and they went away, right? And he looked at the disciples and said, where are you going to go? And they said, where else will we go? You alone. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so that's what I close with. Is that truth that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our redemption. He has paid the price for our sins. He stands victorious, reigning and ruling over all creation. And you put your trust in him. You look to him for how to live. You look to him for how to be and how to exist in this world. And you will find light, real light, real truth, and real life in his name. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we stand in awe of your love. We don't deserve it. You should have divorced us and you haven't. You love us so deeply and so completely. Your love is a never-ending stream of life. And when we come to you, that flow of life through the your dwelling Holy Spirit will never, ever dry up. It goes on for all of eternity. And so I pray that if there's anyone here who has not surrendered to your Lordship, not given their lives to you, Lord, that they would do so today. That they would realize that you are the means of their redemption. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for those of us that know and love you, that we would rest, rest in your grace, rest in your mercy and your love, 
And that we would live every second of every day by your light and your truth. And when we deviate from that path, Lord, that you would bring us back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.